Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, government repression has curbed the NSARS protests in Nigeria. What's next for the movement? And Congolese President Chitsakedi and his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, continue to battle for political supremacy. Is a final showdown looming? Plus, we analyze the U.S. presidential elections and discuss what a progressive policy towards Africa might look like. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In October, the Nigerian military opened fire on NSARS protesters. Is the movement resilient enough to survive government repression and still change Nigeria? Joining me to discuss Nigeria and other topics are Jude Udo Ilo, country officer and head of the Nigeria office of the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. Maria Sarungi Sahai, founder of Hashtag Change Tanzania, and Jason Stearns, director of the Congo Research Group at NYU and assistant professor at the School of International Studies at Simon Fraser University. Okay, the NSARS movement is this important milestone in the history of Nigerian protests and public mobilization. In October, Nigerians took the street to demand the disbandment of the notorious special anti-robbery squad, also known as SARS. This is the young people of Nigeria saying that enough is enough. We keep getting oppressed and brutalized and nothing is changing. And we have leaders sitting there whose core responsibility constitutionally is to protect the life of citizens. When are we going to matter? We are tired. And this followed a viral video of a SARS officer shooting a Nigerian citizen. The protests did force Buhari, President Buhari, to pledge to dismantle the unit, but a week later, the military opened fire on crowds in Lagos. Jude, if you could just walk us through why is the NSARS protest important and what do you see as the future of this movement? Thanks, Judge. You know, like you said in your introduction, this is unprecedented. Uh, the NSARS movement was unique because it was organic. It was not funded by anybody. Young people came together pulled money together to do this. It, it was something that reflected a common concern of a lot of people in Nigeria, which is police brutality, and which was oftentimes targeted against young people. So it was something very close to the heart of the young people, and it was existential for them because uh, they've gotten tired of that kind of behavior from law enforcement officers. And the the powerful nature of that movement was that it was not centralized, it was decentralized, but it was organized. It was non-violent, it, it, was, it was peaceful. These people cleaned up after themselves. They had ambulances for those who were injured. They had food for people who were hungry. So it was organized and the message was very clear, stop clean us. And so for us, seeing that young people who are often seen at Docile in Nigeria could come together without any prompting, but rather responding to something existential to their survival in Nigeria and pull off, you know, this kind of movement in the country is uniquely remarkable. That is unprecedented and it has changed fundamentally the character of the Nigerian states simply by making it clear to the leaders and to the country that young people are no longer quiet and they can impose consequences on Nigeria 
and the politicians when things are not done properly. But here's the question, right? So they have this incredible moment. I think it's an inflection point. I completely agree. Uh, but it does seem like there's some flagging momentum here. The political elite have all stood behind Buhari. Searches on Google for SARS has dropped. The central bank is now freezing bank accounts associated to protesters. Some of the uh, feminist coalition that was behind this are at least underground right now. Maybe they're plotting uh, their next steps, but I- I'm wondering, you know, where do we go from here? How do we translate the protest into real change? I, I think, Judd, one thing to keep in mind, you know, the things we've outlined that government is doing, for government to go to this extent, to come after the movement, reflects the importance that government is attaching to that movement. Secondly, this is not totally unexpected. The Buhari administration, with all these pretenses for respect for rule of law, has no character of respecting the rule of law from since it started. It's disobedience of court orders and, you know, removal of the chief justice of Nigeria. There's a, a track record of disobedience. So it's expected. But what I think is that something has been ignited in Nigeria. Yes, the momentum is dulling because they are coming after all of these people. But keep in mind, Judd, that we're looking at an election coming up in 2023. So there is an opportunity for response by young people. We don't know how that response is going to be. I can't tell you clearly right now what that response is going to be. But there's an opportunity of an election where this mobilization can also determine the outcome of the general election in 2023. Secondly, a lot of politicians are already on edge by what happened regarding, you know, the palliatives that were, that were stored and the onslaught that happened when the peaceful protest was stopped and the hoodlums then took over. Hoodlums that were brought by government, by the way. I need to make that point. So they, all have, they have seen the nature of the anger of young people in Nigeria. And you could see some concern and an attempt to behave differently by some of these politicians. The final point, Judd, is that, yes, a lot of people are coming to support the president and trying to demonize the movement to be just about the destruction that happened after the peaceful protests, you know, was infiltrated. But they also realize that the narrative of North-South is not also working. And so there is consequence to be paid in 2023. And that is where I see the power of this movement going forward. Well, I like that interpretation because I, I have to say I've, I've been a little downcast in the last couple of, of weeks. But I want to bring Maria into the conversation because you have this experience in communication and you're leading your own change movement in Tanzania. And I wonder if you're following what's happening in Nigeria, how you interpret it. But of course, this is the real question is, are there lessons for your country, which is still suffering from that fraudulent, you know, illegitimate election when you see this popular mobilization in Nigeria? Yes, thanks, Jude. I think definitely there's a lot we can learn. And I do know that the NSAR started just on the cusp of the elections uh, when we started here in Tanzania. And I was very active in it, tweeting together with the colleagues and comrades in, in Nigeria. I think that, first of all, just, you know, listening to this conversation, I completely agree that there are two very important lessons to take away. The first lesson that we definitely need to take away is the fact that the hashtag activism has to be backed up by grassroots organizations on the ground. And that is something that is not very easy. The reason that comes to my mind is that there was a call for protest by the opposition leaders in Tanzania, although we didn't have, you know, per se a hashtag around that. 
but it was a call uh, that came through the social media. The social media was very powerful uh, in Tanzania as well, just like in Nigeria, used to mobilize, to give information. But the grassroots on the ground mobilization was very poor. I think in Nigeria, what they've succeeded very well in the NSARS protest was to do that kind of organization on the ground and getting the people out. And there is a reason why people went out. I think that I completely uh, hear what Udo and others are saying is that basically the, the people were ready to go out to express their discontent because they didn't have any other way to do that. If the people still have a bit of hope that maybe through the local courts or through some, some judicial system or some, you know, law enforcement system, there can be justice, then people will not go out onto the streets. The other thing that has happened, and that's the second lesson that we've taken, is that the government has got monopoly on violence. I think that's the lesson that we've taken away from Nigeria. And we should have seen that coming when what followed in Tanzania was a crackdown as well on the part of the government. The crackdown has been brutal in both countries. And I think that what we need to learn as Africans and as citizens is that the governments will not hesitate to use whatever instruments they have at their hand, including force, coercion, and even sending after uh, individuals the full brunt of the state. You know, one, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about when it comes to Tanzania and comparing it to NSARS, as Jude can attest, is that there was a huge conversation between the Nigerian diaspora and and particularly here in America with African-American celebrities and, and the sort of reinforcement of, of the movement. And when I follow Tanzanian Twitter, it's it's largely in Swahili. And I wonder if you you don't have that echo effect to raise awareness in global conversations. And, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I wanted to get your reaction to that idea. No, I completely agree with you, actually, on that, that it is a matter of not having that international angle. I mean, Swahili is very well spoken and widely spoken in Eastern Africa. We have a lot of chipping from, you know, colleagues from from Kenya, from Uganda a bit, and even sometimes from the DRC. So we do have a conversation on a regional level, but I do agree that many Tanzanians are not comfortable with, with English. We all treat in Swahili because our primary audience is always the local audience. I think that more and more uh, we are learning to tweet in two languages. We've learned the power of being able to reach out in English as well. Although there has been a lot of attempt by the government and some of the government-backed hacks to sort of say, if you tweet in English, then you're, you're a traitor because you are, you know, smearing the image of the country, which is ludicrous because, you know, we are not the ones who are doing the atrocities that are being reported. But I think that what is happening is that the Tanzanian Twitter public is, is, is also waking up to the power of the platform. Before we used to think, and it's still, of course, to a large extent, social media was mainly about promoting your business, promoting your brand. And now we're seeing more and more, you know, thanks to movements like Change Tanzania, that these are the kind of social media movements that can create awareness, not only within Tanzania and in the region, but on an international level. So I do agree, Jude, that the language can be a barrier, but I think there's always a way to get around it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, we had a video series with Tandakile Moyo, who's Zimbabwean, and she talked about in Zimbabwe, Zimbabweans use ZANU-PF must go, and then the rest of the world uses Zimbabwean lives matter. And so you can have you know, a regional or national conversation as well as an international one. It's a, it's a really, I think there's a lot uh, of work to be done here and how do you 
mobilize both at grassroots, regional, and then international. I want to move to our second topic, which is DRC. As many of our listeners know, President Chitsakiti and his predecessor in this very unhappy coalition marriage following the 2018 election, Chitsakiti is really only the president because Kabila's first pick lost and he couldn't accept the likely winner, Martin Fayulu. The opposition has accused Chitsakiti of striking a deal for power with President Joseph Kabila. Kabila's ruling coalition won 70% of the seats in parliament, despite fielding a presidential candidate who only won 24% of the vote. And in the past two years, Chisikedi has made very modest, often symbolic attempts to try to get power in his hands exclusively and away from Kabila, but it's not been very successful. Except last month, he made a much bolder move. And Jason, you are one of the closest followers in, in North America on Congo. Can you walk us a little bit through what's happening on the political front. What is the significance of some of these moves by Chitsakedi to swear in court judges that were opposed by Kabila? Yeah, so as you pointed out, the, the origin of the problem is really the election itself. So Chitsakedi, as you said, most likely did not win the election, and he was uh, the beneficiary of a deal between himself and Kabila. And the deal probably was something along the lines of Chisikedi gets the presidency, but Kabila gets to maintain control over most other institutions, national parliament, provincial parliaments, provincial governments. And because the Congolese system is a semi-presidential system, what this means is that even though Chisikedi is president and the presidency is powerful, that the day-to-day business of government is supposed to be managed by the prime minister, who's named by the majority in parliament. So ever since Chisikedi has been in power, he's really been hemmed in and constrained. And, and so there's been this power struggle between himself and his coalition partner, Joseph Kabila, over power ever since the elections of 2018. This came to a head with the nomination of judges at the Constitutional Court. I won't, I won't bore you with all the details about well, how judges are named, but basically there are nine judges on the Constitutional Court. Chisikedi replaced three of them before their constitutional mandates were up. In fact, far before their constitutional mandates were up. And this triggered accusations of political interference from both Kabila's coalition and from civil society as well. And because the Constitutional Court is responsible for judging the president, so in case of high treason, for example, as well as for any election-related issues, what happened then is that uh, Joseph Kabila's coalition refused to attend the swearing-in ceremony of these judges. And that was on the 22nd of October. And a day afterwards, Chisikedi then appeared to go for the nuclear option, announcing on state television that he would start political consultations Les consultations politiques, which appears to be an attempt to wrench the majority in parliament away from Kabila so that Chisikedi would be able to control not only the presidency, but also National Assembly and therefore um, government. So they say that it's going to take probably another two weeks to conclude this, to be able to move forward. I think that, frankly speaking, that's very optimistic. Yeah, considering how long it took us to get the prime minister and the cabinet. Yeah, it's going to be a much longer, a longer haul. I wanted to ask you about this point, you know, Congolese politics can get very conspiratorial. I mean, Nigerian politics can get very conspiratorial as well. But there's been these rumors that the embassy, the U.S. embassy has been encouraging Chitsakedi to pursue this strategy. And then Assistant Secretary Naj, you know, tweeted out that the world is watching and, you know, the Congolese voices have to be front and center. What do you think? Is there is there a U.S. role here? And is it positive, negative? How could this backfire? I mean, I guess 
we've been talking this podcast for two years almost about is there a scenario where where Chitsukedi actually prevails and starts consolidating political power? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, the U.S. embassy has been extremely involved, I think is to say the least. The U.S. ambassador, Mike Hammer, is a very public figure. He's all over, all around the country. He's extremely prominent on Twitter and social media. And the U.S. role in all of this really began at the elections as well. The U.S. government played a key role in first trying to push Kabila out of power and making sure that Kabila was not able to extend his role in power as well as sort of to anoint his own successor. And I think in that sense, there the U.S. played a very positive role that up until 2018. After the elections happened, the U.S. were one of the first international players to move decisively to back this arrangement, this deal, and therefore also to back Chisikedi. And, and if you speak with U.S. diplomats in private, they'll say, look, we understand these elections were highly questionable, but you know, these are the cards that we were dealt. And at the moment, Chisikedi doesn't need us to call into question his legitimacy. He needs us in fact, to back him and to try to muscle out Kabila out of power. And so that's been the logic of U.S. intervention since then. I don't think the U.S. is the puppeteer here. I don't think that the driving force behind Chisikedi's decisions, including the consultation politique, these political consultations that he just initiated, but I'm sure that the U.S. Uh, supports them. The problem is that I think this is pretty risky for them. Some people, including myself, have argued that it would be a mistake to make the end justify all means in terms of getting rid of Joseph Kabila and his allies. In other words, the U.S. could be appear to be backing a rigged election. And now, for example, the apparent instrumentalization of the judiciary. I don't think that's a that's a positive sign, a single dissent. It's also if you break something, you're responsible for it. If, for example, this whole thing now falls apart. Uh, will be in a place of divided government with Chisikedi in the presidency and Kabila's coalition in a dominant role in most other state institutions. And that could block all reform efforts for the remaining three years of Chisikedi's mandate. Since February, we've been asking friends and colleagues across the region to share their hot takes on U.S. politics. I think this is our most important important work that we do. I don't think you can have a strong, productive U.S.-African relationship unless you're having honest conversations about political developments here in the United States as well in African countries. And someone who has spent his entire life analyzing Africa, it's really important to me to share my platform, to turn the tables and ask African thought leaders what they think about what's happening in the United States. And so since February, we've asked African journalists and activists and academics to comment on the Iowa caucus, Super Tuesday, George Floyd's murder, the RNC and DNC, and then debates. And then, of course, finally, the presidential election. And we've been really fortunate to have both Maria and Jude contribute in the past. And I wanted to spend the rest of this episode trying to dissect what happened and what does it mean? So, Maria, let me start with you. What were your reactions to the election? Did the outcome surprise you? How will it change the U.S. democracy? And you know, what does it mean next to the Tanzanian elections? Well, primarily, I was I think I can I can say I was very engrossed in our own election. So I don't think I had half as much excitement and curiosity like I had four years ago, which, you know, together with Jude, actually, we were in the U.S. at that time. And we had 
long conversations and we were really, you know, following it closely. But I did follow close enough. So when I say I'm, I don't follow it that closely, I'm still more than the average African in terms of following U.S. elections and politics. And I must say that I'm not surprised by the outcome. Um, I'm just surprised by the fact that the votes did get counted so far. Uh, of course, we do see that the campaign team of President Trump and President Trump himself is not ready to concede yet. They think that, you know, that there's some sort of fraud and all that happened. But honestly, one of the things that, you know, we, we joke about in Tanzania is that we say, we're saying here that, you know, he has no idea what fraud is. <laughs> I mean, we had, <laughs> we have on video, you know, pre or pre-marked ballot papers being caught, you know, at, at polling stations. So that's that's not the case in the U.S. And what we're seeing is more of technicalities. I think in terms of democracy, I think it's a huge win. I think psychologically, it has boosted the entire world. The fact that by following the principles of the ballot box, you can you can actually vote out somebody who is highly unpopular, somebody who's been very controversial, somebody who is seen by many as a very polarizing figure. And I do know that the fact that this election in many ways has appeared very close in terms of votes in many counties and many constituencies mean that the U.S. society is divided. I think that both sides agree in terms of democracy and both sides believe that they represent the majority. But I think that there are some very fundamental issues that as Americans, I think they can still find common ground. And that is what I think that the world sees hope. They do see that even though there's been a lot of resistance and a lot of rejection of the projected uh, results in the U.S., nonetheless, there is a common theme running up across the media houses, even on the side of the Republicans, which sort of says, you know, this is how elections go. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to go the way you want it, and it's not necessarily perfect, but this is how it is. The second lesson that I see, which is very important, is the legal recourse that people have. The fact that you can go and sue, you can you can try to, you know, put an injunction to stop the vote being counted. I think that this is something that is very important in, in democracies around the world. One of the biggest reasons for such huge amount of post-election violence and post-election upheavals that we're seeing on the continent in Africa is because usually the especially the presidential uh, votes are, cannot be challenged in court, but also the fact that even the, the lower constituencies, sometimes it's such it's, it's so difficult to challenge in court that people decide that, you know, we don't want to waste our time and energy. Let us just go out on the, the streets. And I think that that is something that we definitely can learn from the U.S., that democracy can be tiring. Yes, you can have, you know, one side block the other side and try to see what legally it can do to stop. But still, at the end of the day, cool heads prevail and civil servants do their jobs. When it comes to the judiciary, they remember to put on their they, they judiciary hat and do justice. The election in the U.S. this time around has really created a sense of hope. And that's what I'm seeing. I think partly, of course, the vice president of Kamala Harris is also in many ways, galvanized the world. Jude, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Agree, disagree with Maria. And I'm really interested in if there's any lessons learned from Nigeria or, or broadly from Africa that should be shared with the United States as you know we think about our election process and going forward. Let me just start with saying that I'm, that I'm shocked uh, the fact that the incumbent president has not yet conceded the election. And I'm shocked at the rhetoric of discrediting 
the whole electoral process. So I'm sitting down, I'm asking myself, is this the American democracy? Is it now possible for people to demonize the process and delegitimize the process simply because they did not win? And like Maria mentioned, we were in the United States in the last election, and there was a bit of this behavior on the part of the Democrats, actually, when Trump won the election in 2016. But the good thing was that amongst the leadership of the Democratic Party, they were a bit more measured in their response. But here, we are seeing both the leadership and the followers, you know, throwing in this level of discredited narrative about how unfair and how uh, illegal the election was. So that is one. Secondly, I think the lesson that I'm taking away from the U.S. election as, a, as an individual, really, is this, the need to accommodate alternative views. The way I look at the narrative and the conversation about politics in the United States is off putting really. You know, the demonization of the other side. It's hard to reconcile the fact that people who are speaking from different parts of the aisle are actually of the same country. And I think it's toxic. And these are the things that happen in our own democracy that oftentimes result to violence. And the lesson, therefore, is that there has to be tolerance, that we're able to listen to each other without demonizing each other. We're able to disagree without being disagreeable. I think that is sorely lacking in the U.S. politics and also sorely lacking in the politics in my continent. And given what has happened in our own country where elections become instruments of national destabilization, the United States needs to watch out that if this trend continues, it might become impossible for the co country to come together beyond after elections. I think that's a really important point and warning, and it allows us to pivot to, you know, where do we go from here? And Jason, if you want to share your, your views as an American, that's fine. But I really am excited about you digging into this piece you wrote with Zechariah Mampelli in Dissent, which was entitled A New Direction for U.S. Foreign Policy in Africa. We had Zechariah on in a much earlier podcast, so... You have the, the the honor, if you wanted to call it an honor, to summarize the key uh, recommendations in that piece and help us think through what a President Biden foreign policy should be. Yeah, thanks a lot, Judd. I think that, I mean, just to, briefly on the U.S. elections, I mean, as a Democrat myself, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved, obviously. But I think it's also important to highlight what Jude and, and Maria were talking about, which is that in the U.S., the U.S. Is, resembles, I think, many African countries in terms of the level of its discourse which has become increasingly tribal. And I don't mean that in an ethnic way, but in the sense that it's much more about us and us and them. And the Democrats and Republicans have become political identities, whereas discussions are no longer about substance, but people as if they were intrinsic enemies against each other, completely obfuscating or, or brushing over, I think, a lot of the more important substantive moments of the debate. And so I think that's, that's disappointing in the U.S. And the fact that so many people voted for Trump shows that Trumpism is, is very, very well and alive. Can I just add, Jason, Jude had this tweet early on in the election that I thought was so powerful, which gets to this point. You said, Jude, you said, win or lose, the massive support for Trump is an ominous signal about the character of America. It just sounds like that's exactly what you're saying as well, Jason. That's exactly right. Yeah. So but let me let me address the second point that you wanted me to talk about in terms of our article. So Zach and I in dissent were arguing from the progressive left and, and trying to push for a conversation about the substance of U.S. foreign policy towards Africa, we argue that U.S. policy towards Africa has been relatively static in recent decades, with, of course, some important nuances between administrations. But 
still relatively static while the continent has been changing. You have now China as the largest trading partner of the continent. You have huge economic growth, but also a massive growth in inequality across the continent. And I think the fact that U.S. policy has remained relatively static while the continent is changing has led to a drop in the favorability of U.S. leadership. You saw, for example, one Gallup poll, poll showed that between 2009 and 2014, favorability of U.S. leadership uh, plummeted across uh, 11 African countries where the poll was taken. And that was even before Trump was cutting you know, economic programs, uh, support to the United Nations and other things. And so broadly speaking, we think the new administration should build on the huge upsurge that we've seen in the United States and anti-racist and progressive mobilization to build a more anti-militarist, egalitarian and pro-democratic foreign policy towards Africa. I'm just going to highlight three recommendations. We make a bunch. First is to reduce the military first approach that dominates in parts of Africa, especially the Sahel and the Horn of Africa. Secondly, much like at home, Washington should promote economic policies that shut down tax havens, tackle corporate malfeasance and combat money laundering. More money is lost in Africa due to capital flight than Africa gains in economic aid. And so seeing Africa as this eternal beneficiary of charity is not the right way of approaching it. Africa has enormous potential. A lot of this economic potential is siphoned off through illegal capital flows. And thirdly, we argue that the new administration should reach uh, strengthen outreach to Africans themselves. Across the continent, we've seen popular movements, as Maria was talking about in Tanzania. You've seen social mobilization, often expressing anger with African leaders. The U.S. has not always been clearly on the side of the protesters. In fact, very often not, uh, despite the clear alignment with the democratic values that it rhetorically at least champions. And so this would mean more support to social movements, to democratic processes, to civil society and the media, to education and the arts. So all of this, all of these recommendations that we would put forward should be done while pushing for democratization of foreign aid at home and abroad. Decisions that have enormous impact on African lives are being taken by a very small number of people in Washington without any input from the beneficiaries of these policies in Africa itself. And so we argue that Africans should have a seat at the table. I think there's a lot to agree with, and particularly this idea of that our foreign policy towards Africa has been stuck in amber really for 25 years. And we've done very little to stress test it, to challenge it, to sort of think through new ideas. So I strongly recommend that folks listen to that. And and maybe, Jason, we can take a quick sort of opportunity to see what this would look like in real time. And we're going to sneak into our conversation, just Ethiopia, since there is this outbreak essentially of a civil war right now between Prime Minister Abiy's government and the TPLF and Tigray. And what would a progressive U.S. policy look like in Ethiopia right now? Like if you were, you know, at uh, the table, what would you recommend? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not an easy question. I see what's happening in Ethiopia now with this increased, very dangerous confrontation between the central government of Abiy Ahmed and the TPLF, the Tigrayan government, as symptomatic of a broader problem in, in Ethiopia. Tensions not only between the central government and Tigray, but longstanding tensions between the central government and the Oromo region, but also other regions in Ethiopia have broken out. And so I think that there was a nice paper by the International Crisis Group that was actually pushing towards for a national dialogue. And I think that's the kind of thing that the U.S. should be backing. The U.S. should be working through, as well as in, in other African countries, through regional mechanisms. My guess is here would probably be the African Union, 
would be the most most relevant institution to to work with. But yeah, really backing these local players, making sure that civil society voices are heard and making sure that calm, calm minds and voices predominate because things are looking extremely dangerous at the moment. Yeah, I, I'm deeply concerned. And I, I think there's another point here, too, which is that the U.S. are very for a long time, I think, embraced uh, Prime Minister Abiy's uh, without being critical. And I think that it's it's okay to be critical of allies and it's okay to be critical of both Abi and the TPLF, who I think, you know, walked down this pathway together. And we could have been, I think, much more forward leaning in the in the first instance to be on the side of democracy and civil rights and freedom of, of press and expression uh, before we got to the boiling point. Let's step back and get back to the main topic, which is, you know, I want Jude and Maria, I'd love to hear your reactions to the policy recommendations that Jason put on the table, you know, to live exactly what he's talking about, like, what is right and what is wrong about what he's suggesting? Is he missing anything? And are there elements that you think are really critical to underpin U.S. policy towards Africa? And maybe, Jude, you want to go first and we can end with Maria? Okay, thanks, Jude. I I would just want to add, you know, the... You know, finding this delicate balance between American interest in business, security, and of course, human rights. You know, we've talked about repeatedly, you know, the reluctance to criticize governments that are in a, a bit disposed to either pushing the U.S. interests or aligning with U.S. interests within the continent. I think finding that balance is very important. But the truth is that, in my view, the United States step back a bit in promoting democracy under the Trump administration. And you can see that a lot of activists, you know, like Maria across the continent, that they lack that usual and dependable support that comes from the United States, be it by the U.S. statement, be it support to individual groups to, you know, push, push some of these values that are important to us. There's a need, you know, under this Biden administration to make the democratic promotion, one of the focal points of U.S. foreign policy in Africa. The democratic solidarity globally has shrunk in the last four years. We need countries that are able to rejig that solidarity. And the U.S. can play that role significantly, not just in Africa, but across the globe. And that role is sorely needed in our world right now. Maria, why don't you take us home? What are your, your final thoughts on this? First of all, I think that Jude has put it very succinctly, what I was about to express in about the consistency of the message. I think that the U.S. policy toward Africa has had a mixed messaging. On one hand, you, you find quite a strong message coming out about the rule of law, about the, the importance of respecting uh, human rights. But you'll find that sometimes the U.S. policy is more about blowing hot and cold. I think that the U.S. policy toward Africa has to be primarily grounded in democracy. And it's very rational. It's very logical for that. Where there is democracy, real democracy, respect for human rights and rule of law, there you will never find any problems or you will not need outsiders to come and, and interfere or intervene in matters of accountability, even in matters of development, because citizens will demand and the government will feel accountable to its citizens because it will know that there is a way that they can be held accountable, whether it's going to be through the ballot box during election every X amount of years, or whether it is going to be through the courts, but there is going to be a way that they will be wary of their citizens and very much sensitive and respond to the needs of the citizens. 
Right now, what has happened is that like what we've seen in Tanzania, there's been a systemic undermining of the rule of law. The executive has consolidated everything. Already having huge powers has continued to consolidate power. What you're seeing right now, which is ludicrous, is a 99% ruling party controlled parliament, which means basically there's no financial oversight. And that means they don't feel accountable to anyone. So how can the U.S. engage with a parliament that has got a 99% ruling party where accountability is, is almost next to zero, where there is no other recourse because the judiciary seems to have been muzzled and has been tamed, and, and talk about citizens taking back control, talking about active citizens, citizens holding the government accountable. It's not going to happen. So I think that the U.S. policy has to primarily, and not secondarily, primarily focus on rule of law and human rights. After that, I think we can then expand and look at the larger picture. If this becomes the basis of the engagement of the U.S. government with Africa, I think we'll make a lot and a lot of progress. The people of Africa are ready for the change. That's incredibly well said. Thank you so much, Maria. Let me thank my guests for joining us today. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.